Hey guys, I want to welcome back Yukon River Knives as a sponsor for the month of December. Yukon River Knives exists to support missions work in rural Alaska by providing outdoor enthusiasts with premium quality knives. A portion of every purchase goes to helping advance the gospel in rural areas in Alaska. Featuring both handmade and high quality production knives, Yukon River Knives has curated some of the finest and most useful knives on the market. Go check out their products at yukonriverknives.com and enter Shepherd's Crook at purchase for a 15% discount. Hey guys, I have one of these knives personally and I've been using it this year for hunting season and it's done a phenomenal job. These are going to make perfect Christmas gifts. You're not going to be disappointed. Go check it out. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I hope you are all doing well today. I am super excited to be talking to somebody I haven't talked with before. I just finished reading his book, A Case for Christian Nationalism, actually last night. And it was a delightful read, so I'm excited to talk to Dr. Stephen Wolf. Dr. Wolf, how are you doing today? Good, good. Doing great. Good. Uh, you just call me Stephen. Okay, Stephen it is. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then you'll get to listen in on this promo for Yukon River Knives, and I might even convince you to buy a knife here, Stephen. So let's go ahead and pray first, and then we'll get into it. Okay. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask for blessing upon the conversation. I thank you for Stephen and all you're doing in and through him and his family and his life and his work. And I pray for blessing upon this conversation. Thank you for this opportunity. We wanted to honor you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The sponsor of the month for the show is Yukon River Knives. Guys, you've been hearing me talk about this. Christian Knife Makers, phenomenal premium knives, hunting knives, and you can also use them for everyday carry kind of things as well. You're going to pay a little bit for these, but they're going to be a legacy piece that you can give away to your grandkids, and then they can one day, Lord willing, give those away to their grandkids. If you go to Yukon River Knives, just follow the link in the show notes, you can put in the coupon code Shepherd's Crook and get 15% off. We'd love for you to check that out. Jeremy McMorris is doing great work, and they're great Christian brothers, and I think you'll really like the business and everything that they're doing. A portion goes to missions, just great all the way around. All right, Stephen, I'm interested to get to know you a little bit. I've been hearing about you from afar and the buzz that's been on the internet, both positive and negative. So I picked up your work, been a long, uh, appreciate, I've just really appreciated Canon Press for a very long time. I was glad to see that this was published through them. And I just want to get to know you as my listeners are getting to know you. Why don't you go and just tell us a little bit about yourself and then your family and then what it is that you do. Oh, yeah. So I've uh, married, um, married for quite a while now, I guess. <laughs> uh, we have four kids. Uh, we, um, uh, I was uh, in the army for a while and we moved a lot of, lived in a lot of places and we've, we finally settled in, um, central North Carolina, uh, where we have a few acres and, uh, hopefully have some livestock here soon. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. Um, and mainly at this point, I'm just, uh, I just write and, uh, and, and write books. So it was one book and hopefully future books as well. Um, so I, I went to, went to West Point, graduated from West Point and, uh, then, uh, a few years ago, I got my PhD in political theory at LSU. So that's kind of my educational background. 
Um, okay. Other than that, I, I don't know what else there is. Um, okay. so, so have you yeah. have you uh, drink any? I think it, what is it? The drink out there is cheer wine. Is that the North Carolina drink that everybody loves out there? Have no, you, I, have, I haven't had any of that yet. No, no. Man, you got to become a local out there. I was at uh, <laughs> where was it? Not Glorieta. That's in New Mexico. There's another Baptist camp. It's in uh, uh, Ridgecrest, which is right down the road from the Blue Mountains or something like that. This is where the last of the Mohicans was filmed near Ash. Bill and uh, they were they were nuts about cheer wine out there. So at some point, hmm. you'll have to get you some cheer wine and and uh, and be official North Carolina guy. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about political theory. That's your past in your formal education. You wrote reform political theory, and I really enjoyed the work. Had a few questions. There's no way that we can adequately cover everything that's in this book. And so today, I know in this conversation, brother, I'm going to end this conversation and think, oh, my goodness, I forgot to ask him about this page, about this particular section. And so just a caveat for everybody listening in on the front end. This is a pretty, pretty uh, good sized work that was put together that Stephen put together. And if you enjoy this conversation, just go get the book because we just can't cover the whole thing. And so my whole idea with this is just I'm going to throw out some different ideas and thoughts and questions that I have for you and hear what you have to say about it. But first, I just want to know what was it that motivated you to write this work? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I uh, the, the way this the, it came about is that I tweeted something uh, back in 20, uh, I guess it was probably early 20, maybe, maybe mid 2020. Uh, I don't remember exactly when, but it was, but I, I said, would you guys like to would anyone like to like a, to read a book that defends Christian nationalism? And it got a bunch of likes and all that. And then I think from there, I think Canon's like, oh, Canon picked me up and said, hey, uh, uh, send us um, a proposal. So I did. Um, so that that's that's in, uh, at one level how it all came about. Uh, but I but before that, it was a matter of you know you hear the term. I've said this in other podcasts, but I'll say it again that the 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 conservative. Like the mindset of a conservative is that once you're accused of something, you you run and say, "No, I'm not that. I'm not that." And and uh, and and so um, at, when when we were accused of being Christian nationalists, the the initial impulse was, "No, I'm not a Christian nationalist. That's terrible." And that seemed to be what everyone was saying because we all share that same impulse to deny whatever the left accuses accuses us of being um, because that's what we do. But then as I thought about it, you know, Christian nationalism, well, Christian. Uh, you know, I, I'm a nationalist and a Christian, and I want my nation to be Christian, and I want our laws to be uh, have Christian laws. And so, wait, why am I not a Christian nationalist? Why am I against this uh, this term? Um, why should we be against it? And uh, it, it's uh, so. From there, I thought, well, maybe we can seize on this moment in a way to then to uh, to to argue for a sort of Christian nationalism that I think would be uh, in, in line with the Protestant Reformation uh, and also uh, uniquely nationalist. Uh, and so that's what I sought to do. And uh, Canon gave me the opportunity to write it, and and here it is. Awesome. Well, it has been fun to lean into that term, and in the same way, not as thought out and as put together as you have put down on paper, but I had those same questions. Now, why is this a bad thing? And I think so many people, especially young guys in particular, were leaning in a little bit and thinking, you know, Christian, we're Christian and this nationalism piece. Yeah, we should care about the, where, the place that we live. 
And the way you articulated it, and I, I really appreciate it, even in the, in the first part of the book, that you lay down definitions about what you're talking about. And so I think that's helpful from the beginning because there are so many different competing definitions of what this Christian nationalism is, is and isn't for you to be able to lay out exactly what you're talking about was, I think, quite helpful. And I'm sure that was intentional as well. Yeah, I mean, I knew that that a lot of the talk, a lot of the talk was, well, what's what's your definition of Christian nationalism? And uh, most people kind of gave this uh, this impression of of what it is, and they you can you can encounter like definitions. You can when you start to try to get at a definition, you can approach it from different angles. You could be be like, well, there's this phenomenon in the world that I want to capture with the term, and that's that's mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. If there if there there are these people like you know the Pentecostals saying things about inspired constitutions and all that. If you want to capture those people with the term, you, you find a term and that's what you use the term for. Or you can start actual, like the, the more kind of the, the definitional side, I guess, the, uh, um, the, uh, not, not so much the extension of the term, but the kind of the intention or just this, uh, you know, prior to looking for cases, you, you define something and then you go out and find something that matches the, the definition. That's kind of, I, so I, the way I approached the definition was to think, but it was more conceptually. So I, I didn't have mm-hmm. in mind like, okay, there's this Marjorie Taylor Greene that these other people are saying things. It's not like this, uh, like almost someone, what Aristotle does, like what, what are people saying about this topic? And let's talk about, that's not really at all. I, I don't cite anyone who I think, yeah, other than older from decades or centuries ago uh, who used the term, I don't cite anyone to support um, my my position on that regard, but but I I I broke it down in okay Christian nationalism. How does that term construct us? So you got nation, and then from nation you have nationalism. So there's an ism here. There's like a nation is or nationalism, and then there's Christian. There, there's also an idea of a Christian nation, and then there's Christian nationalism. So what I did, and and actually the book is in part if you follow the structure of the table of contents, is in in a in way. Uh, building upon that definition. So the first mm-hmm. two chapters is like theological framework, um, just kind of, kind of kind of making Christian nationalism possible theologically and anthropologically uh, um, in a philosophical or theological sense. Um, and then, so then chapter three, nation, and I, I go further, nation, nationalism, Christian nation, and then Christian nationalism. And then I, I go, go on from there. So it's more, more like building conceptually. What is it? What is a nation? So I, 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 talk about what a nation is. And then I talk about what nationalism, what's the ism of nationalism? What is that? And then what does it mean to be a Christian nation? So you have nation, now you add this term Christian to it, word Christian, what is that? What is that? And so then I get to Christian nationalism. So I, I build from it conceptually. And so if people are expecting that I'm going to be justifying what a bunch of people are calling, like Samuel Perry's and the sociologists are, are identifying, it's not like I opened up a book of sociology and said, "Oh, I want to. I want to prove that these guys are actually that philosophically and theologically this is true." Yeah. No, I I try to stay and in, in, in general, unless it's like Nisbet or other important like conservative sociologists, I try to stay as far away from sociologists as possible. Um, and I, I'd recommend that to almost to, to pretty much anyone um, is to stay away from. When I went to grad school, in fact, we we shared a hall with the sociologists, and I, I let the I tried to make sure they stayed on their own side. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> applied theology there. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm sure based on some of the things you said, even in the epilogue. By the way, I love the ep- epilogue. I read it last night. And it was just it was really helpful. And I think one of the things you had said earlier in the chapter is that uh, earlier in the book you had talked about how you and the modern theonomists are coming. <laughs> 
at at this whole thing in different perspectives when it comes to the law of God, but in some ways come to similar conclusions. And I thought at the very end of the book, in this epilogue, those conclusions all coming together were really helpful. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But you anticipated in the book in several different places that the reception of this from the status quo conservative and from, you know, you can even put your thumb on on the Gospel Coalition, even with Kevin DeYoung's article. It wasn't necessarily a shocker, I don't think, after reading your book, that that was the response of some of the mainstream Big Eva type people. What has been the response and has it been both the positive and negative, and has that been what you anticipated? Do you anticipate such positive uh, results or e- even such polemic responses from people? What, has it been what you thought it would be? Uh, I, I guess I, I'm not surprised by which camps rejected the book. Um, so the fact that that someone would publish the Gospel Coalition a negative review does not surprise me. Uh, I think what, what has surprised me a little bit, which I'm actually grateful for, is actually the the, the quantity of re- reviews and responses. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I was expecting, you know, again, like, I, I don't know if I was expecting Gospel Coalition, but I was like that sort of people, those sort of people I expected to have it negative. Just, yeah. So um, I think it was a, the quantity. Um, and I, I also didn't expect, because because there's a high quantity, I didn't expect that the the wide range of people who would reject the book so it, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those interesting things where like the the first group to condemn the book were kinists mm-hmm. which is one of his ironies <laughs> and then the, the next group to, to condemn the book were people who thought i'm a kinist mm-hmm. uh which is another you know i've seen a little bit all, of that all, right all, all the irony um wrapped up in that and it's, it's pretty hilarious and then and then later the kinists are like wait what's going on with this now and now he's being accused of being kinist. um so, but just like the the wide range of 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 condemnations of the book, uh, and then the neo Calvinists didn't like it, which is expected. But, uh, um, but I I think that um, what what what's happened, and because of like some of the controversies surrounding it, is that these groups had to respond to the book in a very um, loud negative way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough to just take it, engage it, and and deal with it on its own terms. Yeah. And to credit and to um, you know say this premise is false, that reasoning's false. It wasn't enough to do that, which that was attempted at times, but the reviews had to be enough where they they had to make it almost like morally denouncing mm-hmm. because it, because then they had to say, not only is does it is it full of you know this or that error, but it's also these moral errors that we should be afraid of that mm-hmm. there's, that there's danger that there's like danger here moral Christian danger. And I, I didn't fully expect that. Uh, and, and, but, but now I, I understand why that is a case. Like why would gospel coalition want to be express concern over the danger of Christian nationalism? Well, because mm-hmm. that's that their sort of brand that they'd have to do. And then they, they, they deal with it and be done with it. So, yeah. uh, but that, that, that's, I think, but on, that's the negative side on the positive side, there have been several people um, who have positively positively reviewed it? American re- uh, reformer had a couple like negative reviews, but one positive, or maybe one or two positive, and and of course like the it, it's like a like a uh, you ever look on like Rotten Tomatoes the the movie the the movie reviewer writer thing, mm-hmm. and you have you have these movies sometimes where it's. Uh, it's either hated by like the top critics, but then the audience loves it, or it's the opposite. 
Yeah. And it's, it's usually kind of predictable along political lines, what that's like. And what I've found is that even though like the quote unquote top critics didn't like the book, it was actually wildly popular among the, the audience. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've, I've heard all sorts of people who don't have large followings. Some people have moderate followings um, have praised it. So it's been almost like a grassroots thing. And, and I, I, what I appreciate about some of those people who've given me these reviews is that they, they just appreciate that I didn't, that, that, that I, I wrote the book, even though at time, you know, I don't call, call myself a great writer and all, but, but I wrote to, I wrote to, to, I wrote as if like my, the person reading it is a rational being, a rational human being. Usually I had, I had men in mind. I never thought, oh, this will appeal to women if I say that. I usually always had men in mind when I'm addressing them in the book. And it was uh, a, a way of, of, of one man speaking to another arguments so that they would become convinced of it. Right. And I think, I think for many people that was refreshing and I, and I, that's kind of what I intended. So I'm glad that people did respond this way, that it would be refreshing that I would appeal to them, not, not as this like feeling being or someone who's being watched by women or whatever, or, or, you know, they're stepping on eggshells around the gynocracy, <laughs> but they're actually, they're individual people thinking um, through an argument. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I intended to do. And uh, uh, I hope that at least for some people, it sets a standard so that they they can they can look at these other works by our our uh, you know our our elites and be able to um, see perhaps if it if it meets a a high standard of mm-hmm. argumentation. So. Well, I I so appreciated it just because it's a political theory in in the in a stream of thought that has so abandoned any ability to think through how God's word or how the Protestant tradition applies in the public square. And I think the dust up that's happened in, in large part is because this is such a different work and it has put tweets to a book or ideas to the book that people have been thinking about and trying to navigate, especially in the last couple of years. And I think um, I went and addressed our city council uh, six months or so ago here, at Carbondale, Illinois, Southern, Southern Illinois. We're a, a little blue dot. We're the kind of the mini version of Chicago in Southern Illinois. But I went to the city council meeting uh, and and spoke and used the scriptures to address this murder mill that's coming to town. And at the end, we had a councilman that said, uh, well, to be exact, a council person, to be uh, correct in our community, um, said that uh, he goes, you're a Christian jihadist and you're a Christian nationalist. And it was very, the, the connotation behind it all was awful. And then online, he had talked about me in public in ways that were wildly inappropriate. You said in this book on page 446 at the end, it's only a matter of time before Christian nationalists become the villains in the next imagined reality. And our fellow believers who are just enmeshed in this world as as their secularist neighbors will join in the two-minute hate. And I think what we see in some of the response are those that, I mean, the two-minute hate is here. And in this response, you know, the folks that, and you do quote Ray Ortland and and, uh, Russell Moore as well. And that's another thing I want to get to here in a little bit. But that kind of stream of folks, it's a this kind of a work, it causes a revolt and almost like a gag reflex in so much of what's called the reform world today. And I, for one, am grateful that you would make statements and then didn't step back. You would make a statement, for instance, in chapter eight and talking about revolution, where you're not trying to stem the response. You're not trying to, you're not, you don't feel responsible to say, no, hold on, wait here. No, no, I'm not saying what you think I'm saying. You would say what you have to say 
and then not back down. And those that are, you know, the crowd response you're talking about that loved the show, loved the movie, that loved the book, are really appreciative of that sort of thing. While the reviewers are like, no, 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 back it up a little bit. I could imagine some of them, yeah. even like, you know, Kevin DeYoung saying, no, we need more caveats here. So well, yeah, I, that, that's one, how. Well, that that's how several of them make their. That, that's how they they would do their arguments. Is that mm -hmm. they'll. They'll give you, uh, you know, a based argument, or they'll give you this something that leads to a conclusion that seems like, uh, it, it, you know, it can go one way. It seems really scary, but then, but then they follow up with, well, you know, I mean, we shouldn't actually do that, and that was for a different time. Or uh, I'm not saying you should do this, but you know, there, that's just kind of how uh, a certain crowd kind of works their argument. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll always, they always kind of signal that they're not serious. Yeah, you know, there's always. They have to, they have to drop something in there to their audience that yeah that, that they're just not entirely serious that this is like an intellectual exercise mm -hmm. um, because that's kind of what that's kind of what political theology for a long time has has been which is that it's it's oftentimes this very like fantastical uh, type of um, theology that has really lofty goals and and it's uh, somehow going to magically arrive in, in the on on in you know, in your city or in your country and uh, and, um, but it's, it, it, they always have to, but, but they always have to like drop something in there to make sure that you don't actually act or do anything to bring it about. Right. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah. But you know what we should like, uh, that yeah. Civil power is something ordained by God, but you know what? We really shouldn't love it that much. Yeah. Like they'll drop right. some kind of line in there where, where it's, it's basically saying it's basically giving a line for his, their critics so that they can then come back and say, you love power too much. Yeah. Uh, right. It's just, just, it's how they do their, their, their work. And so, yeah, I, I just refuse to do that. So I just, you know, I'll state it directly um, and uh, leave, leave it at that. I loved, I love that you highlight some of the error of those that are absolutely terrified of power as if atheist secularists can handle power in a good way. But Christians filled with the spirit and armed with the word of God can't handle the power given to them by God. And it is like you can be missional and we need Christian presence everywhere. But in the political realm, you know, you talk a lot about the two kingdom theology. You're what you're talking about, two kingdom theology and what Michael Horton or even really what everybody has adopted, which is a, a I was talking with a Amish guy the other night and everybody is neo Amish, whether they realize it or not, when it comes to the, the civic space. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those those statements and the call for action and the critique of those who are backpedaling and caveating, I thought was so helpful. So some of the things that uh, uh, just the questions that I have, let me start throwing some of these out. And I have some questions from my audience that I, I asked on Gab and other places. You got any questions for Dr. Wolf? I'm not going to name the ones who asked the specific questions because I can't remember who asked what. But one of the things you uh, you do in the in the book, the book is not intended to be an expositional book of passages from scripture that lead to a political theory. It is a different work. You appeal a lot to natural law. You appeal to Aquinas. And that's why folks like myself, confessional Baptists, find it in some ways difficult to read through because I had to stop and I had to think and process and get in your mind a little bit because some of the some of the work there was so new to me, even th thinking about the prelapsarian conception of okay, the, the speculation of what things would be like if in this prelapsarian state, uh, state was I, concepts and things I'd never thought about before. So in developing a, a reform political theory, why did you think the approach that you took was the best approach? Appealing to natural law, 
and even this Aquinas approach. Uh, why did you think that was the best way to go about it more than just straight exposition, uh, something more like the classic theonomist would have done? Yeah, so there's <clears throat> there's a lot of ways I can approach that. Um, on, on the natural law side, I should just say that everyone affirmed natural law before the 20th century. Um, I, I, I know that's a lot of people don't like people that, that might be kind of a new thing, but, um, you know, Calvin did all the all the 17th century reformed. Um, it, it's fundamental to reformed orthodoxy from the 17th century um, and on from there. Of course, there's like different conceptions of it, but uh, the, 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 there was a weird 20th century kind of rejection of natural law uh, as Roman Catholic. Or as a, and there's there's even like a weird um, reform rejection of Thomas Aquinas uh, in the 20th century, and that continues to today. And that's there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But what's odd, what is odd about it, is the lack is people not recognizing that that Thomas Aquinas was quoted by uh, everyone within the 17th century in a positive way, um, sometimes negative. I mean, so they're the, you know you're not you're not going to adopt the Thomistic system entirely. But you take like someone like Francis Turretin, who's I think the one of the best, like in terms of like theological polemics, the best, uh, maybe ever. Uh, and he, he he's quoting Aquinas all over the place, and he's quoting him against other Roman Catholics like uh, uh, Bellarmine. So, uh, but anyway, the, the, what, what, let's get to like the, the thing about scripture. I, I think that's where most people nowadays are uh, uh, uncomfortable. Because I don't cite scripture, I don't. Uh, only a couple, two or three times do I kind of exegete, or I guess it'd probably be more expositing, exegeting uh, scripture. Uh, and the reason is that I, I just I, I assume a lot of theology, mm -hmm. I assume theological articulations, and I work from it. And so, uh, what, like, let's say I was going to do a work on uh, a, a political work uh, that that applied the doctrine of the Trinity to politics, you know. Oh, let's say I did that. Well, would you expect me to then prove the doctrine of Trinity from Scripture before I did that? Would I have to write a, 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 a so volume one is me proving Trinity from Scripture, and now I can get to the politics? Or would most people be okay with me simply assuming that the doctrine of Trinity and even the classic articulations of the Trinity, and then working from that to then show how that would apply logically to a certain political system? or to develop politics in some way. I think most people would be okay with that. And so what I did is I said, okay, I think there are common positions within the 16th to 17th century reform thought. I am going to assume those positions and I'm going to work from them. Okay. And so chapters one and two is me essentially laying out those assumptions in, in a logical systematic way use and also um, supporting those with citations from everyone like uh, every everyone from calvin luther uh boeing um uh, there but turretin i just all sorts of people and you can see if you flip through chapter one and two you can see the extensive footnoting all over the place in that in that chapter mm -hmm. uh, and so that that's what i do and then i go from there and i do uh essentially what i see is from those assumptions and other places i do it make i assume things as well but I go from there and do political, um, uh, what I call, you know, like political, like Christian political theory from that, yeah. from that theological foundation. And I, you know, I, and I say explicitly in the book, if you disagree with these assumptions, then you may not agree with my conclusions. That's just, you know, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, and, I, but if I were to try to prove all the, that, that system that I present in chapter one and chapters one and two, 
uh, biblically and actually demonstrate them. One, I don't think I could do that as a, I wouldn't be very good at that because I'm not a theologian. And also uh, it would take an entire book, if not more. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, but so why, why not just assume it say, okay, Francis Turton is a better exegete of scripture than I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and by the way, all these other guys said the same thing. Uh, and so I'm just going to assume it and that that's it. And I, yeah. I, 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 this is like a big critique of like, like Brian Matson did that critique where he didn't, he didn't prove it through scripture. Well, I mean, if, if I, if I, if I uh, like included a bunch of scripture, uh, like citations of proof as proof texts for these doctrines, we'd just be talking about how those proof texts do or do not support that doctrine. Right. And right. then that would just, it, it would re- entirely derail what I was trying to do with the entire project. Um, and again, if you, if you don't agree with the system, then you may not agree with the conclusion. That's, that, yeah. that's how it is. <laughs> so, well, and that's uh, okay. Disagreements certainly are okay. And the good thing about the Christian faith is the Proverbs tell us that iron sharpens iron. So does one man sharpen another. And there's helpful processes to get where we're going. And even though I was at times scratching my head, wondering how you got to these places um, or um, how things were the way they were as you presented them, uh, I didn't find myself thinking, boy, this Stephen Wolf is a bad guy. It was, this is a different thing for me to think through and process. One of those, for instance, and this is a question that came from a couple people, is in this prelapsarian concept or vision, you had said the formation of nations is not a product of the fall, and it is natural to, to man as man. But the evil in nations is caused by nations, that's caused by nations, is the abuse of what's intended for man's good. And in thinking about nations and the civil civic, civic order, the question of Babel just comes up. It's come up from several places of, okay, what was the confusion of the languages and how language is intimate to place and people and nation. And from your definition of nation, it seems like there's many nations within this one nation that we we currently exist in. Um, it could be anyways, I don't want to assume, but um, so how, how would you square away even that, that prelapsarian vision with things like Babel and the breakdown of peoples because of the language barriers that now exist, which seem to be my people, my place, uh, broadly, and not developed even post-fall. So how that would have developed pre-fall, and maybe that's still in the area of concept, or you know what Turretin would have said. But how would you answer somebody that's like, "Hey, Babel, nations wouldn't have existed beforehand"? Uh, I mean, well, first of all, if you one thing to notice about Babel is that the fact that they could they could all speak the same language. Uh, seems to indicate that they're they're capable with having a similar similar language of achieving great things because they, they could communicate. So I think that it, one of the ironies here is that the actual Babel Babel actually proves my point one of my points. Okay, which is that having a common language is necessary to actually achieve things uh, as a a common project. Obviously, what they were trying to achieve was was sinful and prideful, but it but still shows that the ability to communicate is necessary for you to complete great things, great things, you know, great good things. Um also I I uh like let's say like even if I mean let's say that the the that I'm wrong about the languages thing, uh that everyone still would speak the same language around the world uh in the prelapsarian state, um, then that doesn't that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be uh cultural differences between them. So like, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously, uh, we can talk with, um, people in Scotland and, 
England and Wales and Ireland um, fairly well, just despite maybe some accent uh, issues and some other word and spelling differences. But uh, but we're still certainly not the same cultures as them. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing with the United States. I mean, I, you could a New Yorker can communicate with the a Cajun, but um, but uh, they they are certainly not the same culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so e- even like even if there were the, there's the same language, it would that doesn't mean there there would be um, the same culture uh, around the world. Okay. Also, I think Babel. I mean, the, the fact that 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 at one point there was a uh, early in human history that there was a sort of coming together to to in Babel uh, does not mean that there wouldn't have been uh, as people spread around the, as they got larger and spread around the earth that there wouldn't have been differences in culture. Gotcha. Um, so so I I, I don't I, I know that like people want to say well yeah that's that's why there's different cultures but. To me, like if you look at like the argument of the book, what people don't actually address uh, is that I I don't just state these things in in chapter uh, chapter two and chapter one. Mm-hmm. I don't just like it's just not my it's not just my take. You know, like mm-hmm. people it's as if right. I tweeted this isn't out. a novel, Stephen yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, I say the look like if as people spread around the the earth, they they are going to. Um, have to inhabit different places. There's going to be a relative isolation. You can't fly around like Superman's. Like the fall caused us to lose this ability to fly or to somehow do telepathy or whatever with other people around the wor- world. There'd be separation uh, of, of peoples. We're also dependent beings, meaning that I, I can only be a good carpenter if you're a good farmer because I can't be all at the same. I can't be good at everything. And so we would have to then communicate our gifts to these two other people. That is a work such that it would for the good of our neighbor. That's also part of the natural law. Um, and so there'd be communities that would form. And these communities would be uh, relatively isolated. Now, I mean, I say relatively, not, you know, they, they would be, you know, you can't, you can't have a community in, in, in the ocean. You can't have a, a community on the top of a mountain. You mm-hmm. normally, and it'd be preferably in a valley and the one People would be a, a valley over it. And, and I don't know if it, cars or flying cars or airplanes or something, but at least for a while, you'd probably have some uh, uh, separation of geographic separation. And I think that if you're in different places, you're going to start developing different ways of life. And that might be that you, what you wear is different, but you, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think dialect would change probably over time. Uh, the sort of things you would eat would be different. Uh, how you like, and uh, your, your song and, and your literature and your, uh, maybe even some some aspects of your worship would be different, and uh, so I I just think that that given human um, what what we are and what, what we kind of would think that we'd be we we wouldn't we didn't lose like these faculties like we obviously lost faculties but it wasn't such that it would it would bridge the gap between distance on the planet mm-hmm. and I think from that you can. I think you can you can uh, reliably infer that there would be differences on, um, among different peoples, and right. this would this would be such that if you went to a different place, you you would be you would have a similar feeling of foreignness than you would have now. So if I flew to France right now, I would have a, a sort of disorientation because I wouldn't know the place, I wouldn't know the language, I wouldn't know all sorts of things, how to get by. If I was left there and fend for myself, I'd be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a prelapsarian state, if you were to kind of be dropped into another community, I don't think there'd be animosity or fear or strife, but there would still be some disorientation because the way they do things 
would be different than the way you do things. And that's, that's yeah. fine. Like, I'm not saying there's any problem here, of course. Uh, but but the, the point being that I think these differences would arise naturally. It's actually good that there's diversity. I mean, if you look at the, the, the Christian tradition going away, it's like, you see this in Augustine and before you see this in classical times. In fact, Augustine, uh, Augustine's quoting Cicero, um, in this, in this regard, uh, it's this idea that that diversity, that unity in diversity, is better than just pure sameness. Okay. So it's the it's yeah. I mean, specifically talking about like hierarchy in society. So like the idea of a, a, a like a musical triad or a chord. You know, um, you know C E D uh, C E uh, C E G. I'm losing my mind here. You know, like <laughs> a major chord. Um, and uh, and that the, the the harmony in that despite difference is actually more beautiful than just doing the octave of c and c mm-hmm. uh, so the, the, i i think that applying this principle i mean it's not a direct proof but it does it is consistent with the idea that that uh, uh, several different nations and difference itself but unified under a same kind of global mission is more beautiful uh and um is better than, than just having just sameness yeah but we, but we are, but we are very kind of like, <clears throat> like in the West, we're very kind of, we're kind of weird about this we're, we're, we get very nervous about cultural difference and we don't like the idea of affirming difference. We always kind of want to make things same and universal uh, or in some, you know, in some way. And I, I think that we should just kind of get over that yeah, uh, and, and, good. and, and think as clearly as possible about what, what these so anyway, I've been yeah, that's helpful. Hey, on for a while. Go ahead. That's all right. And everybody listening in, Hey, listen. For the sake of time, we're going to move on. But if you're thinking through this and thinking, huh, I don't know, or yes, that's awesome. We'll get the book, read it and check it out for yourself. Because I'll have to say those first two chapters were really fun for me to, to read through. And the fact that there was this vision of of hunting in the prelapsarian state was <laughs> yeah. also kind of cool to yeah. think about. I also think about Jesus eating fish after he was resurrected uh, and and think, OK, maybe there's a connection there about those two two things. Um, well, on on that, if I, if I could say, because because your audience might like this, I mean, there yeah. the reason why I included that in there uh, is because I uh, it is, is because I don't want us to think that that masculinity and that sort of active like uh, that that struggle like sort of struggle because the hunting is difficult. You know, it's obviously very difficult and challenging, especially if it's like large animals. Uh, it's it's a challenging thing, and that's one reason why men are interested in it. Is it takes some skill, it takes some, especially if you don't have firearms. But uh, there, there, but there is something very masculine about it. Men are, tend to be drawn towards it, uh, and part of my putting that in there and other things, even like the martial virtue. I said that there'd probably be some kind of skills in, in fighting and and in pre-absarian uh, state, which is again counterintuitive, or we don't think that way. But it's to, just to affirm that our our masculinity. Like we're not, uh, the fact that we're strong, the fact that we're stronger than women is not some post-fall addition or modification to who we are, that it actually has something to say about our design. And so that means then that what, what's the end or tell us of, you know, men with their strength, with the sort of body that God uh, designed them to have. It was to use muscles. It was to do something that a, a woman who's usually weaker cannot do or cannot do as well. And so that means that, that those masculine features 
are not something we can say, oh, well, grace will destroy that. It's eliminated by grace because it was post-fall. It's due to our fallen state. No, it was like you're a man with muscles by design, and you ought to, uh, at least in general, you ought to uh, use those um, for for the good of yourself and those around you in your community and, and family. Uh, and so that that's that's what I'm trying to affirm. This, mm-hmm. when, when you say that, like when you say that these things are prelapsarian, you're saying that they're good in themselves. That they're yeah. not they're not like some post fall addition. We don't have to feel sorry for them. And if if in our world, if 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 in our if our world has no room for mask like a masculine masculine virtues, then something's wrong with our world. It's mm-hmm. not us because our world tells men that we're that that it's a that that our masculinity is pathological. That is something needs to be suppressed mm-hmm. and it needs to be um yeah it needs to be suppressed. Otherwise, it'll actually harm the world. <clears throat> it's better to be feminine and gentle and and meek and all that. Um, but, but actually it's, but the, you're, you're just, again, as I said, you're designed for this grace does not destroy it. Grace affirms, assumes nature. And, uh, so we ought to exercise masculine virtues with confidence as being natural to us. Yeah. Yes. And amen. Okay. I want to quickly hit the difference between, you know, a lot of my listeners have heard critiques of two kingdom theology based on much of what Michael Horton projects and many others as well. And as you talk about historic two-kingdom theology, it's different than this weak, limp-wristed kind of thing that's out there now, uh, proposed by many people in the evangelical world. And a couple examples of that, you mentioned uh, Dr. Uh, Russell Moore and Ray Ortland, both. We already dropped their name once before. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read these these excerpts here, but they claim to be influenced by people like Francis Schaeffer, who was influenced, clearly a student of Cornelius Van Til, and is kind of known for popularizing some Kuyperian thought in a way that, and distill Kuyperian thought and Van Til in a way that people can understand and apply uh, in all of life. And yet they are so weak in their lamenting of, of the death of cultural Christianity. And you say at one point in this, how's it going for you at the death of cultural Christianity? And <laughs> your kids are getting, I mean, the, the school system, everything in the public square is vile beyond anything possibly imaginable from even I'm pushing 40, anything I could possibly imagine growing up. It's a totally different world, just in a matter of of 20 years. I mean, the seeds and the roots of that go back many, many years. And the theonomist did clearly see the trajectory of where we were going. But when we talk about two kingdom theology, what people who propose that they literally are like this Amish brother, just stay away. This, my kingdom is not of this world. So let's stay away. And yet you are here proposing historic two, two kingdom. Can you just make it a, a different, differentiate between you and some of the things that you're proposing yeah. and and then what, you know, Michael Horton and those that, you know, would fall under that same stream of thought, like a Russell Moore or a, a Ray Ortland, uh, just explain those differences. Yeah, I mean, one of the the one of the unfortunate um, one of the unfortunate unfortunate things that happened in the recovery of two kingdoms theology is that the people who recovered it first got it wrong. <laughs> so the the Van Drunen and the Michael Hortons and others who uh, recovered two kingdoms theology in the '90s and 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 up to the, to this day, they interpreted it as these as almost like church state, uh, such that. This, the state cannot be cannot be Christian. You cannot have a Christian nation. That everything I mean, I, I, I talk about in the book, where like I, 
um, I, I don't want to get into too much of the details, but the, but the, they just they get it wrong and that they, they assume that you that somehow because the church is the exclusive place of redemption, therefore there's no there's no restorative aspect to the state mm -hmm. or the non-church realm. Um, so, but yeah, that, that's just simply false. And, and the way they, I mean, one of the, one of the ironies is like Van Drunen has a whole book basically arguing that, that two kings theology was the most popular, was the only, um, theory, the, the only theology of the fifth, the 16th, the 17th century, and even earlier. And there's, there's, there's truth to that. I mean, Calvin is two kingdoms, uh, everyone, the 19th century, um, the 17th century is two kingdoms. And, and I, I don't, I think it's not until the, the 20th century where we have these kind of, um, uh, kind of diverge from that part, partly because it was lost and partly because we think all these things are Roman Catholic. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the, everyone was two kingdoms theology. Uh, it's explicit in Calvin. Uh, but the, the, but none of them, I should say none of them, but the, the, the vast majority and all the big names that we know from the, the 1500s and 1600s believe that there should be Christian magistrates who defend the church. Mm -hmm. uh, the instituted church um, and just Christianity broadly. And uh, th they weren't being inco in incoherent or inconsistent with two kingdom theology. Um, a lot of people like Van Drun and DG Hart will say things like, well, they were just, those were just holdovers from the uh, medieval realm. But no, I mean, this is Scott Clark would say too, but of course not. I mean, it's the, the difference is that it's not that you are bringing heaven to earth. It's not that you're immunitizing the eschaton or you're, making the invisible church visible or anything, anything like that. What you're doing in the civil kingdom is you're, the, you're using the powers of the civil kingdom to order people to the higher kingdom. So uh, you would um, like, you know, you'd close businesses down on Sundays. And why would you do that? Well, because that gives people an undistracted time to worship God on Sunday. And what would you do on Sunday? You go to church and Sunday is the, the spiritual administration of word and sacrament. So in that sense, it's an indirect means of the state ordering people to higher things. Mm -hmm. um, the same would be like, you know, punishing blasphemy or heresy if, if, a, if a people want to do that. Um, that wouldn't be um, trying to eradicate uh, error so much as it would just encourage the normalization of Christianity. That it would be something considered in people uh, bad to do. It's a sort of pedagogical uh, means of saying that's bad. You don't do that. Mm -hmm. And that would support the normalization of Christianity, which again points people to higher things. So it's not, you know, it's not making the civil magistrate like uh, a mediator of divine grace. Mm -hmm. No one ever claimed that. And they rightly never claimed that. And they didn't have to claim that to be consistent. It was simply the civil magistrate has a duty to orient people to their highest good. And that's yeah. it. Well, and that's all that's, that's essentially all I, I mean, I guess in essence, that's what I'm saying in a lot of words, uh, that that's what, uh, nations and, the uh, civil rulers and culture ought to do is orient people highest good. And, uh, yeah. And, and as I said, that's not, it's not conflating or com compounding earth and heaven and sacred and secular and all that. It's actually ordering one to the other, which is mm -hmm. precisely what all these two kingdoms people believed um, for centuries until our modern two kingdom people showed up and started saying otherwise. Yeah. Well, this is the very on-ramp, what we're talking about here for Baptists like myself, and I certainly can't speak for all confessional Baptists. Many of your conclusions I have agreed with and yet would have gotten there in different ways. So as I read your book, 
I can get to those same conclusions. And I'm thinking, here's how I would argue to get there. Here's how I would get there in a little bit different route or whatever it may be, based on some of the things we've already talked about in the show. In here, you, you make an exclusive claim that this is a Protestant, reform Protestant political theory. And then in a couple of places, you get down even into the more nitty gritty details and talk about covenantalism and Presbyterianism and ask, you know, make statements about not knowing how Baptists would get there. And one of the easy ways that for, for me to get there is this belief that the civil magistrate is a servant of God and he has to know what is right and wrong. He has to know how to punish evil and reward the good. And so in, in not in a covenantal way, but in an authority of scripture way in all of life, saying that there are obligations to the civil magistrate that are designated and given by God is the on-ramp into, for me, this idea or concept of Christian nationalism, whether we call it Christian nationalism or not, it is this, this, this is how I get there as a Baptist, not necessarily covenantal route, but just recognizing that there are obligations that God gives in the public square that the church has responsibility to inform those in those, in those roles on, on how to rule. Not that we are the rulers, but we are, and we do have some sort of obligation to say, thus saith the Lord to you, uh, civil rulers, if you don't know. And uh, so that is for, for in, in many ways, my on-ramp into this idea and concept is the scriptures are authoritative and they speak to what happens out there and we should obey that. And um, so anyways, there's a small yeah. Baptisty reason of why I can <laughs> yes and amen much of your, your, your stuff. Um, how has the response been from, from other Baptists? Have, has, uh, have you gotten much feedback from the, ba I'm, I'm assuming it's, it's uh, probably very nitpicky and frustrating uh, from, from that side. Uh, and that's probably how they feel about some of the stuff that you've thrown down, or has it been kind of a warm, uh, warm welcome from some of the Baptist or confessional Baptists you've talked to? I mean, one of the interesting things is I, I don't, I don't see any, you know, any one denomination or side taking, you know, uh, taking my side more than anyone else. I mean, I've Anglicans don't like it and they like it. Presbyterians <laughs> like it. They don't like it. Baptists gotcha. like it. They don't like it. So, uh, but I mean, among Baptists, I mean, Andrew Walker wrote a negative review, uh, and, but then there's been positive people like William Wolf, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, or my, my brother, William Wolf, <laughs> um, has, has liked the book, uh, and, and many other Baptists have liked it as well. And I, I intentionally try to stay away as much as I could from, uh, trying to, because I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to want to be one of these like typical guys who like starts being too Presbyterian where I'd say, oh, you Baptists can't be consistently Christian nationalist. I do have like one paragraph where I have to address it. And I say that, you know, Baptist, the pedo baptism does seem to be more consistent with the idea of a Christian nationalism. But I, I do have hope that Baptists can construct a, a compatible version of Christian nationalism alongside right. mine. And so I, I, I also recognize one Christian uh, Baptists are, even though I'm Presbyterian, they're, they're my brothers and I'm, I'm not going to uh, do any sort of um, advocate for their, their, uh, their, their loss of rights or whatever in, in, the, in the future Christian nation, uh, national um, state. But um uh, but yeah, but in, in the end, in, in America, we we need the Baptist. Like you know, Presbyterians have—I don't think Presbyterians have ever been above one percent of the population in the United States. Um, and so we need the Baptists, and I don't want to alienate them. 
Yeah. Um, and so I, so I, I actually, I don't go to battle against anyone except, uh, some modern two kingdoms guys. I, I, I criticize Theonomist briefly. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Well, well, let's go there uh-huh. before we set you up. Let's go to the, the theonomy critique before we go to the end. I thought the epilogue was phenomenal because it was really the what now stuff, very yeah. helpful and yeah. very practical because so much of the what's what's in theory and conceptual, I was right there with you in the epilogue thinking like, okay, well, okay, what, what in the world for the average person who reads this, how, how's this going to be? What, what do you do? Yeah. How, how do you possibly get there? We're talking about the Christian prince. We're talking about revolution. We're talking about so many things that are outside of our realm of thinking. How do we get there? But first, I want to go to the critique of theonomy because I was reading this and thinking, Dr. Wolf, Stephen, brother, the theonomists, the modern theonomists are appealing so much to the Puritan tradition that was pre-16th, 17th century that you're pulling from. And you make this statement, and this is like the one thing in here I was like, okay, I really want to ask them. My disagreement with the theonomist is a different form than that of their typical critics. Christian nationalism is a coherent alternative to modern theonomy that achieves the same or at least similar ends. So uh, real quick, um, so the Rush Dooney types, the Gary North, um, the, you know, all the the Kuiper, Van Til, that theological tradition that that has splintered out even to Doug Wilson today. And everybody that's been influenced, the drum frames, everybody in that tradition, that has been so helpful. One guy in particular, Dr. Joe Boot, that has been out doing a lot of interviews and writing over the last few years. And uh, Joe Boot talks about how the modern theonomist, what he argues in his book, Mission of God, is they're, the, they're just new Puritans. It's just Puritanism, uh, Puritanism 2.0. That's all it is. And makes some really compelling arguments about that. And but here's what you said. You said the the Christian nationalism, as I presented it, flows directly out of classical Protestantism, and modern theonomy does not. So I was just curious. I just wrote a question, and I wrote really. So <laughs> I would love to know just your what before we get into the the, the epilogue stuff. So in what way, as guys are thinking through theonomy, because you actually made a statement in here that it seems to be in decline. But from my perspective, this theonomy seems to be over the last two years, making a roaring comeback from an almost dead ember state into a massive, I mean, brush pile of, uh, of people excited about God's law and reading R.J. Rushdoony's Institutes of Biblical Law and all that kind of stuff. So I would love to know the different trajectory here of how you think modern theonomy does not flow from the classic Protestant tradition. Yeah, I don't think it does. Uh, but the uh, I'll just say that... my. I could be wrong about the whether or not theonomy is in decline. I guess I'm just from that. It was from my own experience, which I remember about 10, 10 about ten years ago when I when I was on Facebook more. All my, my circle of friends, uh, many of them were theonomists, and I remember there there were these, these theonomist groups. And then, uh, but uh, to my knowledge, all of them left um, theonomy, and they became essentially more classical Protestants, maybe more like Presbyterian. Like classical Presbyterian in their view of of the law, and so that that's my impression. So maybe yours is different. I could be okay. wrong about that, but um, yeah, I mean, i I think it's uh, I think it's pretty clear that uh, even the Puritans were. Um, let's just take New England Puritans that they were they thoroughly affirmed uh, natural law. And that uh, such that the, the such as scripture, the the moral laws or the moral principles and laws of scripture are is like a sort of republication or it's like an inscripturated form of natural law. Now that that doesn't mean that 
that, that doesn't mean that you that ev- that you have to in order to construct a body of law you have to start with reason you can't appeal to scripture but it, what it does mean though is that you you, you don't have to uh, that if, if you were to that your, your body of law that you would construct has to meet the actual circumstances of uh, on the ground and you can you can you can take an appeal to scripture for your your the law that you establish um, but it's not a process of simply taking you know the the mosaic law in its entirety or its civil code and then just taking that and reworking it for for every single place or, or just transcribing into the, the law of the land of every place. And that's actually not what, I mean, even the, the, uh, like, um, in Massachusetts, they didn't do that. So uh, I think it's, I think it's Bonson likes to say that, that, that Tom, that Tom Cotton, that John Cotton, um, that, that John Cotton wanted to build a, a body of law based direct appeal to scripture. And he has like an appendix to his biblical theonomic ethics books or whatever it's called. Um, but what's interesting is they actually didn't adopt John Cotton's. They, they adopted Nathaniel, oh, time and cloud kill me for not knowing the guy, Nathaniel. Um, I can't remember what, what, what well, you'll anyway, remember I, I it as soon as we hit stop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will. Um, but, uh, but, but he came up with a law that was actually more uh, based in the English common law. And, um, and there are, there are laws like in the laws in early new England did appeal to scripture at times, but a lot of them were also just based upon the common law of England. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, there were some that, that a direct appeal to scripture, like, um, uh, particular ones that, that appeal, like a concern, the death penalty for, you know, like murder and, and, uh, other like sexual deviancy, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but other other than that, it was it was they, they constructed it based upon um, kind of English common law, and uh, and, and so I, I just I, I I don't think there was there ever was a time that that I, I don't I don't know of anyone who believed theonomy in the way people do do today uh, mm-hmm. or in the last 20, 20 or forty whatever however long it's been. Yeah, well, that's hopeful. Um, I, I, I mean, it's. Yeah, I, I think that the issue is that, that there. So there are like you can you can have, and I keep going on and on, but I, I think that there is a, a different way you can approach it. You can approach it from kind of this Anglican, almost like Thomistic angle, where there's actually a lot more, uh, like like you can, you can affirm reason, the oper- operations of, of like pure reason um, mm-hmm. as being somewhat reliable. That would be you might find something like that in Richard Hooker. That there is some of that where he says that, like that idea. And and um then on the other side, you'll have probably the more Presbyterian view where there no, we need to we need to appeal to scripture for our civil law. But it's not in like the, the theonomic sense that it's here's the law code now, let's legislate it boom into right uh, okay. into our, our polity now. It's more of okay, here are how do we, how are we going to order ourselves? We need these laws. And now let's kind of appeal to scripture to, to structure what we need. Um, and uh, all, all those laws would conform to natural law, but we're not doing kind of natural reasoning to get to it. Um, so, well, I, and I think that would also, but I mean, cause there's so many different, when we're talking about Christian na- nationalism, definitions are important because there are differing views, angles and, and uh, ideas about it. 
really with theonomy, depending upon who you talk to as well. Yeah. There's so yeah. many different definitions of, because I mean, at one point here, I mean, if you just, uh, you know, you said, I affirm a form of theonomy, civil law ought to be in accordance with God's law. So there, there is a sense in which um, we understand that God's law, depending upon what we mean by that, does have, uh, does come to bear in the public square, whether acknowledged or not. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I think definitions certainly do matter, but for the but like, time, if I could, if I could talk about, well, if I could talk about law a little bit. So, I mean, yeah. so the way I understand it is that there's that we, that our, our good, that the hu- human good is defined by the moral law of God, that moral law of God is of God is, is firstly natural. So it's a natural law, uh, meaning that it's that these principles that if we, if we follow these principles, it's, it will achieve our end in life and our, and our happiness so that and this is you can see this this is the most universal thing claim ever um and uh but the moral law is also expressed or inscripturated in scripture okay so you have those two means you, you can you can know it in principle by reason and you can know it by faith through scripture the same the same law okay it's originally natural but it's also inscripturated in scripture so there's these twin sources for knowledge of the natural law Civil law is is a derivative law. That is, it's derived from natural law. Because if if natural law is is our only source or our only basis or ground of our good um, in action, then laws, the civil laws, which order action, must be rooted or derived from natural law. Um, and 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 in addition, it has to be suitable for the actual circumstances that on the ground. So in this sense, in we can then uh, we can in principle appeal to reason, but of course maybe reason's corrupted so far we shouldn't do that. But we can in principle, uh, because that's like you know the, uh, the one instrument in deciphering the natural law and working through it in determining civil law. But we can also appeal to scripture to get at the same law, the, to get at the same natural law, so we can understand the principle and even a determination of that principle in the civil law code of the of the Old Testament. Um, and also the ex- explication of that by the prophets, the New Testament, mm-hmm. and, and then you can enact civil laws that are suitable for our for our purposes, um, based upon Scripture. But in doing so, you're not you're not. It's not like it's an arb- It's like it's a some arbitrary law that God established. It was it was originally, it's rooted in natural law, and it's good for us on that basis. So that's how I think if you read the Puritans. And you see them appealing to scripture. They're not saying, oh, this is God's law as, as defined in the Mosaic Code, therefore it ought to be our law. They're saying this is a divine like prescription of what is good that's rooted in an original law of God that's natural. And we're going to appeal to this for our good. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, diff- it's, it's different than saying that there's like this arbitrary, adventitious set of laws that we need to then yeah. transplant every place we go. It ultimately, and what what this means, though, I, I think the important thing here is if all these things are rooted in natural law, they are, then doing these things is actually according to our own nature. We're being human. Like this mm-hmm. is why this is one reason why I, I I say natural law is so important is that it's not an arbitrary set of laws. It's actually we're being who we ought to be from the beginning by following mm-hmm. the law of God. You know, it's like a, so it's you're being human. By if God says men should be like this, well, we're actually acting as men ought to act right. according to our nature. Same with women, and that 
Uh, and so in, in this sense, to obey God is to actually be truly human. If we mm -hmm. were perfect, we'd be truly human. Um, and to fail to, um, to, to fail to, to do what God says us, tells us to do is in a way be like a, is to violate our own humanness. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. yeah. I want to say again, again, Stephen, helpful stuff. And, um, for uh, guys, just go get the book. Cause there's so many things that you can read so many articles out there. The best thing is just to go read it yourself. And it's a lot of fun. You're going to really enjoy it along the way, especially for me. My favorite chapter was on, uh, the revolution, uh, on, on the right to revolution. Um, okay. <laughs> phenomenal. I have like, wow, fire, uh, all over the place on mm. here. Just such good statements on here. Um, I want to bring everybody to really a unifying point because I think the, even the critics throughout the book, you get to the epilogue and there's so much agreement to be, I, I think, recentering ourselves around uh, local. I, I loved what you talked about it, about your boys that you at one time wanted them to have white collar jobs. Now you're wanting them yeah, yeah. You know, to have uh, autonomy, some freedom, the right kind of individualism that you appeal to in the book. Yeah. Um, and not the wrong kind of, of, of individualism, but certainly the right kind. Yeah. And uh, would you just if you could do it over or just a quick overview of the epilogue of where you bring us mm -hmm. at the end, the what now, because I thought that was yeah. incredibly unifying for those that may come to different conclusions in different ways, but you get to the end and you're like, Oh man, this is, this is dynamite. Yeah. I mean, when, when I got, when I finished, so, I mean, I wrote the epilogue last obviously. Yeah. And uh, I, once I finished the last chapter, which is kind of on American history a little bit, I said, well, I don't want to write one of those typical conclusions where they just kind of tell, I tell them what I told them already. And so I, I just started thinking, you know what, I, I'm going to do this form where I have like a, like the large aphorism um, approach. You know, you see this in some people um, that just kind of large, like aphorisms, not short, but long ones. And, and, uh, and, and I, I didn't really know because of the, because of the nature of the project, even though I'm American, I want to see America be a Christian nation and all that. I, I didn't want to just stick with America and say, this is what we do as Americans do now. But I, I did want to address the West, like broadly speaking. And I, and part of it was me saying, okay, what, what are some of the more psychological things we need to get over? Not everything in there is psychological, but, and, and, and some of it is that like, okay, we need to get away from this, like some of the conservative impulses uh, we need to stop. Um, uh, I don't have to remember what I wrote now. <laughs> There's all sorts of things in there. Uh, it, it, so you have to, you kind of have to get, get, we have to move on from conservatism. That's yeah. one thing. Because conservatism oh, yeah. now, when you're, what we're saying the, yeah. to, to really understand conservatism, what you're conserving now is the trash of America. Like that's what we've become. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. we're, we're not conservative, you know, when, when typical conservatives think about what right. they're trying to conserve that's the, the the this new america the old america's dead and we don't want to conserve this new america yeah th thank you for reminding me yeah and and one way to think about this is the uh, military uh is that the that the conservatives love to send their best and brightest into the military but then you have to ask yourself well what what exactly is the military conserving and fighting for mm -hmm. and uh, i mean when you see when you see um rainbow flags fly and in, in kabul um afghanistan you got to wonder what you're fighting for and some other things and so uh that, that that was one thing that we have to like we have to stop thinking that somehow these institutions are for us and we have to start thinking that no they're actually against us um and and to go um from there 
But uh, the other thing was the gynocracy, which is uh, which um, early on people got really offended by, and and now everyone knows the word gynocracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for right. Publicizing. They have like but, dictionary. I know that this is <laughs> this is probably surprising. You get to page four hundred and fifty, and you're like, well, now he's talking about women. Weird. Um, but yeah, the gynocracy is this idea that we live under this uh, sort of control of feminine virtues or the, like the um, feminine virtues, more like feminine vices, yeah. uh, the abuse of feminine uh, uh, vice, uh, uh, virtues, vices. And so everything's under, like, we, we have to think in terms of what's safe and, and what's fair and we have to cooperate. And, and it's, sti- and I think this stifles sort of, like you said, a, a, a positive individualism. Um, I think men are able to, um, men are able to, reconcile individualism and hierarchy like we we know how to know we know who should be the capital captain of the of the team out in the playground and who's going to pick and choose and we kind of know who's good at this and who's good at that we we self-sort to find out what we're good at i mean I, i've been reading um piles of robin hood and uh everyone kind of knows that robin robin hood is the leader mm-hmm. and then you got little john and, and these other guys and each have their unique skill as a collective band of merry brethren um, and they share everything in common, but it, each of them is still an individual. Individual. There's no this sameness, and I think gynocracy tends tends to. I mean, imagine if there was some sort of um, like a school marm showed up in in the Sherwood Forest. It would destroy mm-hmm. everything that they're up to, right? It'd be awful. Um, and I think that's kind of you know to put it briefly, that's kind of what's happening. And uh, in, in that, and then the other one is um, the idea of like universalism. I think in the West we tend to like this is where I've been accused of being like critical theory in the right, but I, I do think there is something to the idea that in the West we want to see our own sense of ourselves and our values and the uh, idea of quote human rights, and uh, we want to see this transplanted around the world. And we are the only we're the only set of nations that it's going to go around into a, a completely foreign country uh, among people who don't want us to be there. And we're going to die so that they can have, um, they can get their purple thumb to vote in an election. Like we're the only people that do that. Mm-hmm. And like, my question is why do we do that? Like we think that's noble and great, but it's because we, we tend to think that these Western values ought to be universalized everywhere. And p- part of my point in all this is just say, you know, we need to start thinking about, who we are as, as people groups, not as a united like people, but as different people groups, we need to start thinking more along those lines that we are, uh, you know, particular that we are, we do belong to these, these individual people groups. We're not like the universal man that has to be recreated everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and that's, you know, well, uh, just leave it at that. Um, yeah. but, but anyway, like I, I, and then there's like some things about, I don't know. There's other stuff in there as well, but there's, you can also, there's a bunch. And, and, and there's, if you're wondering, if you're wondering how this all connects to Christian nationalism, it's, it is at times people are wondering, well, okay, you got to bring it back, got to bring it back. Um, but I, I think there, there's so much, you know, in order to get to the point of actually seeing Christian nationalism, we have to get over some of these hangups we have in our mind. And, and I, so the, first we just have to rethink ourselves and i mean i can't explain exactly what i mean by this unless you read the book but but we have to kind of recreate or rethink ourselves in order to have the the sort of will for will to make this happen um and so i instead of just having this game plan where we vote for all the right people 
uh, I think we have to kind of change, change our, our minds and mm-hmm. self-conception. And so that's kind of what I was going at there, kind of reorient ourselves, see, like see the world and our place in it rightly, and then, and then go on from there. Yeah, that's good. Well, Stephen, I end every interview giving people the opportunity to thank God for his grace. And I just ask a simple question. It's coming your way. Stephen Wolf, why do you love Jesus, brother? Oh, um, yeah, great question. Uh, I mean, why do I love Jesus? I, I was uh, in high school, I was an atheist. Hmm. Um, and uh, my my sister uh, became a Christian and I polarized from her and became, that's why I became the atheist. Uh, non, it was a non-Christian home. Uh, and, uh, the, the trajectory of my life was certainly not good. Um, and, uh, I was saved when I was 17. Um, and, and from there, uh, I, I mean, a, a, apart from the, the obvious, which is saving from your own sin and, uh, and eternal damnation, there is uh, a, a lot of, um, Jesus has made it so that, um, I, I can live this life with, Con, you know, in, in a way, a good conscience toward God, knowing I'm forgiven in Him, mm. and also to uh, have um, one wonderful Christian wife and and kids, and church and community, and so, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a when when Jesus when Jesus says that He's the He's the light of the world, it's it's one of those things that that you you're free from going from an atheist to Christian. You you you, it's like this. It is a sort of light, uh, even though I was a young atheist. Uh, you see that this this light of the world, not only not only with regard to future things, but even the present things. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Mm. Well, that's good stuff, and I'm so thankful for the time that you've given us today. For everybody listening, we've been talking to Dr. Stephen Wolf. He is the author of A Case for Christian Nationalism, and it's published by Canon Press. You can get it at Amazon. I'll have links in the show notes. You can get it at Canon Press too if you want to stick it to Amazon. And Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the show, brother. Yeah, thank you.